Section 17 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Roman Rides, Part 2. The Campagna differs greatly on the two sides of the Tiber. It is hard to say which, for the rider, has the greater charm. The half-dozen rides you may take from Porta San Giovanni possess the perfection of traditional Roman interest and lead you through a far-strewn wilderness of ruins, a scattered maze of tombs and towers and nameless fragments of antique masonry. The landscape here has two great features. Close before you on one side is the long, gentle swell of the Alban Hills, deeply, fantastically blue in most withers, and marbled with the vague white masses of their scattered towns and villas. It would be difficult to draw the hard figure to a softer curve than that with which the heights sweep from Albano to the plain. This, a perfect example of the classic beauty of line in the Italian landscape, that beauty which, when it fills the background of a picture, makes us look in the foreground for a broken column couched upon flowers and a shepherd piping to dancing nymphs. At your side, constantly, you have the broken line of the Claudian aqueduct carrying its broad arches far away into the plain. The meadows along which it lies are not the smoothest in the world for a gallop, but there is no pleasure greater than to wander near it. It stands knee-deep in the flower-strewn grass, and its rugged piers are hung with ivy as the columns of a church are draped for a festa. Every archway is a picture massively framed of the distance beyond, of the snow-tipped Sabines and lonely Seracta, as the spring advances, the whole Campania smiles and waves with flowers. But I think they are nowhere more rank and lovely than in the shifting shadow of the aqueducts, where they muffle the feet of the columns and smother the half-dozen brooks which wander in and out like silver meshes between the legs of a file of giants. They make a niche for themselves too in every crevice and tremble on the vault of the empty conjets. The ivy hereabouts in the springtime is peculiarly brilliant and delicate, and though it cloaks and muffles these Roman fragments far less closely than the castles and abbeys of England, it hangs with the light elegance of all Italian vegetation. It is partly doubtless because their mighty outlines are still unsoftened that the aqueducts are so impressive. They seem like the very source of the solitude in which they stand. They look like architectural spectres and loom through the light mists of their grassy desert as you recede along the line with the same insubstantial vastness as if they rose out of Egyptian sands. It is a great neighbourhood of ruins, many of which it must be confessed you have applauded in many an album. But station a peasant with sheepskin coat and bandaged legs 
in the shadow of a tomb or tower best known to drawing-room art and scatter a dozen goats on the mound above him and the picture has a charm which has not yet been sketched away the other quarter of the campagna has wider fields and smoother turf and perhaps a greater number of delightful rides the earth is sounder and there are fewer pitfalls and ditches the land for the most part lies higher and catches more wind and the grass is here and there for great stretches as smooth and level as a carpet you have no alban mountains before you but you have in the distance the waving ridge of the nearer apennines and west of them along the course of the tiber the long seaward level of deep coloured fields deepening as they recede to the blue and purple of the sea itself beyond them of a very clear day you may see the glitter of the mediterranean these are the occasions perhaps to remember most fondly for they lead you to enchanting nooks and the landscape has details of the highest refinement indeed when the sense reverts to the lingering impressions of so blessed a time it seems a fool's errand to have attempted to express them and a waste of words to do more than recommend the reader go citywards at twilight at the end of march making for the porta cavalleggeri and note what he sees at this hour the campagna is to the last point its melancholy self and i remember roadside effects of a strange and intense suggestiveness certain mean mouldering villas behind grass-grown courts have an indefinably sinister look and there was one in especial of which it was impossible not to argue that a despairing creature must have once committed suicide there behind bolted door and barred window and that no one has since had the pluck to go in and see why he never came out every wayside mark of manners of history every stamp of the past in the country about rome touches my sense to a thrill and i may thus exaggerate the appeal of very common things this is the more likely because the appeal seems ever to rise out of heaven knows what depths of ancient trouble to delight in the aspects of sentient ruin might appear a heartless pastime and the pleasure i confess shows the note of perversity the sombre and the hard are as common an influence from southern things as the soft and the bright i think sadness rarely fails to assault a northern observer when he misses what he takes for comfort beauty is no compensation for the loss only making it more poignant enough beauty of climate hangs over these roman cottages and farmhouses beauty of light of atmosphere and of vegetation but their charm for the maker out of stories and things is the way the golden air shows off their desolation man lives more with nature in italy than in new or than in old england she does more work for him and gives him more holidays than an hour short summer climbs 
and his home is therefore much more bare of devices for helping him do without her, forget her and forgive her. These reflections are perhaps the source of the character you find in the moss-coated stone stairway climbing outside of a wall, in a queer inner court befouled with rubbish and drearily bare of convenience, in an ancient quaintly carven well, worked with infinite labour from an overhanging window, in an arbour of time-twisted vines under which you may sit with your feet in the dirt and remember as a dim fable that there are races for which the type of domestic allurement is the parlour hearthrug. For reasons apparent or otherwise, these things amuse me beyond expression, and I am never weary of staring into gateways, of lingering by dreary, shabby, half-barbaric farmyards, of feasting a foolish gaze on sun-cracked plaster and unctuous indoor shadows. I mustn't forget, however, that it's not for wayside effects that one rides away behind St. Peter's, but for the strong sense of wandering over boundless space, of seeing great classic lines of landscape, of watching them dispose themselves into pictures so full of style that you can think of no painter who deserves to have you admit that they suggest him. Hardly knowing whether it is better pleasure to gallop far and drink deep of air and grassy distance and the whole delicious opportunity, or to walk and pause and linger, and try and grasp some ineffaceable memory of sky and colour and outline. Your pace can hardly help falling into a contemplative measure at the time, everywhere so wonderful, but in Rome, so persuasively divine when the winter begins palpably to soften and quicken. Far out on the Campania, early in February, you feel the first vague earthly emanations which in a few weeks come wandering into the heart of the city and throbbing through the close, dark streets. Springtime in Rome is an immensely poetic affair, but you must stand often far out in the ancient waste, between grass and sky, to measure its deep, full, steadily accelerated rhythm. The winter has an incontestable beauty. It is preeminently the time of colour, the time when it is no affectation but homely verity to talk about the purple tone of the atmosphere. As February comes and goes, your purple is streaked with green, and the rich dark bloom of the distance begins to lose its intensity. But your loss is made up by other gains. None more precious than that inestimable gain to the ear, the disembodied voice of the lark. It comes with the early flowers, the white narcissus and the cyclamen, the half-buried violets and the pale anemones, and makes the whole atmosphere ring like a vaulted tinkling glass. You never see the source of the sound and are utterly unable to localise his note, which seems to come from everywhere at once, to be some hundred-throated voice of the air. Sometimes you fancy you just catch him, 
a mere vague spot against the blue, an intenser throb in the universal pulsation of light. As the weeks go on, the flowers multiply, and the deep blues and purples of the hills, turning to Asia and Violet, creep higher toward the narrowing snow line of the Sabines. The temperature rises. The first hour of your ride you feel the heat, but you beguile it with brushing the hawthorn blossoms as you pass along the hedges and catching at the wild rose and honeysuckle. And when you get into the meadows there is stir enough in the air to lighten the dead weight of the sun. The Roman air, however, is not a tonic medicine, and it seldom suffers exercise to be at all exhilarating. It has always seemed to me indeed part of the charm of the latter that your keenest consciousness is haunted with a vague languor. Occasionally, when the Sirocco blows, that sensation becomes strange and exquisite. Then, under the grey sky, before the dim distances which the south wind mostly brings with it, you seem to ride forth into a world from which all hope has departed and in which, in spite of the flowers that make your horse's footfalls soundless, nothing is left save some queer probability that your imagination is unable to measure, but from which it hardly shrinks. This quality in the Roman element may now and then relax you almost to ecstasy. But a season of Sirocco would be an overdose of morbid pleasure. You may at any rate best feel the peculiar beauty of the Campania on those mild days of winter, when the mere quality and temper of the sunshine suffice to move the landscape to joy, and you pause on the brown grass in the sunny stillness, and by listening long enough, almost fancy you hear the shrill of the midsummer cricket. It is detail and ornament that vary from month to month, from week to week even and make your returns to the same places a constant feast of unexpectedness. But the great essential features of the prospect preserve throughout the year the same impressive serenity. Soracte, be it January or May, rises from its blue horizon like an island from the sea, and with an elegance of contour which no mood of the year can deepen or diminish. You know it well. You have seen it often in the mellow backgrounds of cloud. And it has such an irresistibly classic academic air that while you look at it, you begin to take your saddle for a faded old armchair in a palace gallery. A month's rides in different directions will show you a dozen prime clouds. After I had seen them all, I went piously to the Doria Gallery, to refresh my memory of its two famous specimens and to enjoy to the utmost their delightful air of reference to something that had become a part of my personal experience. Delightful it certainly is to feel a common element in one's own sensibility and those of a genius whom that element has helped to do great things. Claude must have haunted the very places of one's personal preference and adjusted the divine undulations to his splendid scheme of romance, his view of the poetry of life.
He was familiar with aspects in which there wasn't a single uncompromising line. I saw a few days ago a small finished sketch from his hand in the possession of an American artist, which was almost startling in its clear reflection of forms unaltered by the two centuries that have dimmed and cracked the paint and canvas. This unbroken continuity of the impressions I have tried to indicate is an excellent example of the intellectual background of all enjoyment in Rome. It effectually prevents pleasure from becoming vulgar, for your sensation rarely begins and ends with itself. It reverberates, it recalls, commemorates, recitates, something else. At least half the merit of everything you enjoy must be that it suits you absolutely, but the larger half here is generally that it has suited someone else and that you can never flatter yourself you have discovered it. It has been addressed to some use a million miles out of your range, and has had great adventures before ever condescending to please you. It was in admission of this truth that my discriminating friend who showed me the clouds found it impossible to designate a certain delightful region which you enter at the end of an hour's riding from the Porta Cavalleggiere as anything but Arcadia. The exquisite correspondence of the term in this case altogether revived its faded bloom. Here, veritably, the oaten pipe must have stirred the windless air and the satyrs have laughed among the brookside reeds. Three or four long grassy dells stretch away in a chain between low hills over which delicate trees are so discreetly scattered that each one is a resting place for a shepherd the elements of the scene are simple enough but the composition has extraordinary refinement by one of those happy chances which keep observation in italy always in her best humour a shepherd has thrown himself down under one of the trees in the very attitude of Malibuius. He has been washing his feet, I suppose, in the neighbouring brook, and found it pleasant afterwards to roll his short breeches well up to his thighs. Lying thus in the shade on his elbow, with his naked legs stretched out on the turf, and his soft peaked hat over his long hair crushed back like the veritable bonnet of Arcady, he was exactly the figure of the background of this happy valley. The poor fellow lying there in rustic weariness and ignorance little fancied that he was a symbol of old-world meanings to new-world eyes. Such eyes may find as great a store of picturesque meanings in the cork woods of Monte Mario, tenderly loved of all equestrians. These are less severely pastoral than our Arcadia, and you might more properly lodge there a damosel of Ariosto than a nymph of Theocritus. Among them is strewn a lovely wilderness of flowers and shrubs, and the whole place has such a charming woodland air that casting about me the other day for a compliment, I declared that it reminded me of New Hampshire. My compliment had a double edge, and I had no sooner uttered it than I smiled. Or sighed. 
to perceive in all the undiscriminated botany about me the wealth of detail, the idle elegance and grace of Italy alone, the natural stamp of the land which has the singular privilege of making one love her unsanctified beauty all but as well as those features of one's own country towards which nature's small allowance doubles that of one's own affection. For this effect of casting a spell, no rides have more value than those you take in Villa Doria or Villa Borghese. Or don't take, possibly, if you prefer to reserve these particular regions, the latter in especial, for your walking hours. People do ride, however, in both villas, which deserve honourable mention in this regard. Villa Doria, with its noble site, its splendid views, its great groups of stone pines, so clustered and yet so individual, its lawns and flowers and fountains, its altogether princely disposition, is a place where one may pace well-mounted of a brilliant day, with an agreeable sense of its being rather a more elegant pastime to balance in one's stirrups than to trudge on even the smoothest gravel. But at Villa Borghese, the walkers have the best of it, for they are free of those adorable outlying corners and bosky byways which the rumble of barouches never reaches. In March, the place becomes a perfect epitome of the spring. You cease to care much for the melancholy greenness of the disfeatured statues, which has been your chief winter's intimation of verdure, and before you are quite conscious of the tender streaks and patches in the great quaint grassy arena, round which the propaganda students in their long skirts wander slowly like dusky seraphs revolting the gossip of paradise, you spy the brave little violets uncapping their azure brows beneath the high-stemmed pines. One's walks here would take us too far and one's pauses detain us too long when in the quiet parts under the wall one comes across a group of charming small schoolboys in full-dress suits and white cravats shouting over their play in clear Italian while a grave young priest beneath a tree watches them over the top of his book. It sounds like nothing, but the force behind it and the frame round it, the setting, the air, the chord struck, make it a hundred wonderful things. 1873 End of Section 17